0: Welcome to another episode of the Rental Journal Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the equipment rental industry. I'm your host, Mark Simonson, and today's guest is Scott Daly. Scott is the JWG General Manager for Australia and New Zealand, and I actually got to record and catch up with Scott in Adelaide at the Hire 22 convention. Uh, So if you don't know what the Hire 22 Convention is, it is a annual event uh, that is run by the HRIA, or the Hire and Rental Industry Association. Every year there's an event, uh, they collaborate, they bring everyone together. Uh, There's trade booths, uh, there's guest speakers, uh, there's networking events. Uh, They'll have like their programs, like the Women in Hire and Young Professional Network and all that sort of stuff. So it's a really good opportunity if you are involved in the industry, want to learn more about the industry, check it out for next year I think it's in Sydney next year Uh, but yeah so this year I was in Adelaide I took the opportunity to fly over uh, and interview various people and I was lucky enough to sit down with Scott Daly while I was there I'm super excited to share Scott's story I've I've known him for many years uh, him and JLG Uh, Scott's worked at various rental companies over his career he's been at JLG forever he just moved into this general manager role uh, recently over the last 12 to 18 months uh, and yeah, I hope you really enjoy the podcast and let's get into it.
1: All right, Scott. Well, welcome on the Rental Journal podcast. Thanks, Mark. I yeah, really appreciate you having me. Excited to uh, have a good conversation today, so that should be great.
2: Awesome. So we are at the Higher 22 convention and you are somebody that I've known for a, a very long time. So it's quite exciting to, to have you on here and And share my experiences
1: because i want to hear your story through the podcast yeah i'm looking forward to it and yeah well done on on the whole rental journal piece had an opportunity in the last you know a few months to have a listen to lots of the guys that have come on and 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 spoken about career paths and all those sorts of things and you know i found it really insightful so yeah looking forward to today but also yeah we've had a a fairly long-standing relationship both of us coming through you know respective businesses so yeah it should be good Awesome. So maybe just to start off with,
2: um, we know you're at JLG today and we'll get to that story, but how did you first get into the equipment rental industry?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting interesting one. Um, Left school um, early 2000s, finished VC and was probably a little bit lost on where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do and um, just by chance, um, just through some connections, fell into the rental industry um, in Melbourne through ConPlant with the Coleman family, Ian and Doug Coleman. And they were coming to Melbourne uh, back end of 2003, I think it was, to set up a Greenfields operation. Um, and just through network and, and someone that I knew basically put me in contact with Ian and Doug. And um, I'd done a little bit of selling in the past and some sales stuff. And it always tinkered with equipment and machinery and, and and from a hobby point of view outside of work. So had a little bit of mechanical knowledge, not a lot, that's for sure, but um, got into Complant, as I said, in 03, um, spent the three or four years with them setting up a greenfields operation in um, in Notting Hill, sort of central um, eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, And and essentially the message was, we're going to come to Melbourne, we've got a great product, a great business. Um, There was three or four of us that they employed and they said, go for it. And and it was on the back of some really big civil projects that were starting in Melbourne, Eastlink, and Bypass, Called up bypass Geelong Freeway, so I think the timing was perfect for Conplant to come down. And I knew nothing about compaction, nothing about rollers, um, all those sorts of things. But yeah, it was a fantastic opportunity, and um, still have a really strong connection with the the two Coleman uh, boys in, in um, Ian and Doug. Uh, got a lot of time from, them and always great to see them at the shows. But got into, as I said, got into the industry in in, in the back end or early part of uh, 03 back end going into 04 as well. So. Yeah,
2: well, Ian was actually on the podcast yesterday, as we spoke about, and uh, his story with his family is, is an unbelievable one.
1: Oh, it's incredible, and you know, it's it's. I think we've probably had these conversations off off air before as well. It's it's just such a strong family brand, the Complant piece, and and I think uh, one thing I always think about Ian and Doug is they just got really great um, family values, and it's it's that corporate business with a real family flavour still. So, you yeah, know, th- I'm sure that um you would have got a, a lot of great insightful information out of me and he's a, he's a, good guy. This podcast episode was sponsored by the fleet office.
2: Get away from paper documents and spreadsheets and become more compliant by using a cloud-based fleet management software. Save money by streamlining your higher business and understanding your fleet and utilization better. Create quotes, invoices, allocate equipment and operators to jobs and easily compare your projected income with your current invoices making you more profitable. Pre-starts, risk assessments, maintenance, timesheets, dockets, and asset efficiency, all managed on one easy to use platform. Learn more at thefleetoffice.com.au. Well, definitely. So then you started at Complant, it sounds like you were in a sales role uh, within, in Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, how did it sort of evolve
1: from Yeah, there? so I started in um, Complant, as I said, o three o four. Uh, did about two years in sort of a sales role, BDM style role, just out, Driving the whole customer base and growth, as I said, the business evolved from uh, four or five people to, to about 15 of us. Um, was lucky enough to be appointed the branch manager of Complant in Melbourne, same facility. About two years later, just with some things changing in the business. So did, as I said, two years in sales, two years as a branch leader there, up until about 0708, and then um, and then obviously then moved back my next opportunity at, into jlg so um yeah no that was that was the sort of next step of the journey outside of complant so. so so
2: obviously we'll get into the jlg piece being an oem to the industry when we complant like it it would have given you a really good base to understand the the equipment rental
1: industry yeah oh 100 percent. as i said i knew nothing about the whole rental piece the higher space and the beauty of complant back then is They'd just been appointed the Amman dealer, which is obviously a compaction range that they they were they were the OEM for. So they were a higher business on one hand, and on the other hand, they were also um, selling to the customer base. So you almost walked in with uh, two different offerings. Mm. So I, I thought, and and especially where I am now from an OEM point of view, I thought um, that was really exciting because you could either hire it through them, or you could either, or you could sell it to the customer. So yeah, that was that was something that I I think gave me a lot of learning, and especially around that whole OEM piece when I went to that next step. Mm. And it's probably a good question for you. So
2: a lot of people are getting into the the realisation that rental is a big opportunity, especially in like the US at yeah. the moment. But the problem is they have uh, these, these BDMs or these reps that have always just sold equipment. Yeah. And then they're giving them a rental piece and saying, go sell rental. What do you think the main differences are for someone that needs to sell rental or
1: sell in you know, a piece of equipment? Like, oh, is there... Is there big differences? Oh, I think there is. I think well, uh, the reality is I've always been uh, of the belief is it's they're both relationship industries. It's about follow-up. It's about building relationships. It's about people um, just getting answers they need in a timely fashion. I, I think sometimes we overplay it, but I think the biggest thing is just about building really, really solid relationships with your customers and, and real repetition in what you do. I think there is a difference. I think the, the, the higher pieces that churn, grind day-to-day, Dropping in on building sites, going into offices, um, probably really fighting um, to get your, your product out there from a higher point of view. Um, and there's lots of different elements that drive uh, people making decisions to hire off your price, um, offering, um, you know, geographical locations where you are. Whereas the OEM piece is probably a little bit different. You know, you're representing a brand, a product. Um, you know, there's a marketing piece. Um, it's It's also how you're supported from the back end from that OEM and all those sorts of things. So I think there is different elements Mm. of both parts of the industry, selling um, from a higher point of view and the OEM. But I I still think the big thing for us and for me is it's just all about relationships. It's just building a really strong network of relationships and just being really honest. I think that's the the key to both sides of those businesses. Yeah, definitely. But But if I can just add, I also think that it's exciting for someone in a business if you've got two strings to your bow instead of just doing one. Um, And that's something that I think uh, from a JLG perspective, we really try and do that as well. You know, with our guys now, you walk in and you sell all things JLG instead of walking in and going, I'm here to sell a machine and we'll Mm. talk about service later. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. That plays a big part. So
2: so then... I'm almost certain that most people listening to this podcast know who JLG is. Yeah, but we, we'll go down that route just a little bit. So, yeah. so how did you transition to JLG uh, from Complant, and maybe you want to just give that a thirty-second brief of who JLG is?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'll do the JLG bit first. So obviously, JLG um, is a is a, a U.S. based business, well founded in the U.S. Uh, by John L. Grove. Um, been an industry heavyweight for, for obviously 50-plus years, um, has a massive product range of uh, mobile elevating work platforms, telehandlers, um, lots of different things. JLG is actually owned these days by the Oshkosh Corporation, which make military vehicles, um, fire trucks, um, massive industry, um, I suppose, equipment, all the th- garbage um, and refuse disposal um uh, trucks and those sorts of things, but uh, JLG is, is a is a brand under the, the Oshkosh banner these days. But as I said, global global powerhouse from a, a mobile elevating work platform point of view, uh, and represented in most countries around the world. Um, as I said, I could talk JLG for forever, um, and it's 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 a it's a great brand, and I think like you said, really well known globally. Um, From a getting into JLG point of view, got into JLG in, uh, I think it was early 2000, um, in 2008, Um, just there was an opportunity as the state manager of the Melbourne operation, Melbourne Tasmania, Um, JLG had uh, a number of branches around Australia, It was in expansion mode, they'd had a new CEO for about two years before I'd been there and he was on the real path of growth, change, driving real standards through the business, giving it some real renewed marketing presence and all those sorts of things and he was he was a guy that um, and this was Andrew Saddley mm-hmm. and he was a guy that really took the brand to the next level and it probably just needed a real refresh and that was his real wheelhouse so didn't didn't know any of those guys and got got appointed the branch manager slash state manager uh, early mid I'll start again mid 2008 and um, and sort of came in and uh, Melbourne was one of their sort of Big, big branches, real heartland, passionate people around the brand, buying the brand, lots of rental companies in in Melbourne, and so um, yeah, basically had thirty five staff, sales, service, spare parts, um, you know, used equipment, uh, a fleet of about ten or twelve field service guys on the road, and just went for it for about uh, for about two years in that branch manager's role. So yeah, really enjoyed it, and it was just a great change. And the complaint piece was good, but it was probably just time for that next step, mm. and um, I think. For for my my sake, that OEM space really suited me. I really really enjoyed the change. It was good.
2: Yeah, Andrew Satterley, he's a he's a bit of an icon in the industry, isn't he?
1: Yeah, he is. He is, and he and he, and he has some real presence about him, and he and he's a really smart uh, business guy. But he, I think the thing that really appealed to me, and the things I watched him do, especially, was just he just knew knew how to really reset a brand. If that made sense, like um, he was very good at that whole brand presence marketing. Uh, where it needs what what the structure needs to look like, and and was really strategy focused, and it was it was interesting, and probably coming from a family business, the Complant piece, which was done differently to a corporate piece, and not not in a negative sense, just that they were just different the way they they did mm. that sort of stuff. But as I said, I think JLG back in that sort of probably 06 to 08 piece. Before my time was in that reset mode, that's for sure. Do yeah. you know he
2: actually wrote a book recently, Andrew Satterley?
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I was aware of that. I, I haven't, I've haven't seen it, but I think it was something he would wanted to do for a long yeah, time. Yeah, it's been pre-released. I don't think it's been delivered yet. So I,
2: I've got my, my um, reservation in there. Oh, but, there you go. But once it comes
1: out, I want to get him on the podcast because
2: he's got a, an amazing story. Oh, as well. a,
1: a hundred percent. And he's had some some really senior roles in leadership leadership positions with some really global brands as well. So yeah, and he's and he's well recognised across the industry. That's for sure.
2: So you get into JLG and then is this where you sort of worked your career progression? Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. And it's funny, I'm not, I don't really want to talk about myself too much, but <laughs> I, I I wouldn't say I've jumped around and I'm a big believer that I don't, didn't really want to jump around, but I did two years at JLG, 08 to 2010 in the branch manager, state manager role. And then Andrew Satterley, um, in his role, he went to Asia from a JLG perspective. So essentially everyone sort of jumped up a chair. So uh, Bob Mules, who was the... Uh, the national sales manager or sales director back then, he took the GM role and there was a vacancy for the, the sales director role so I was lucky enough to be appointed sales director in 2010 to 2012. So um, really enjoyed it, knew the business, it was just the next step for me. And I felt like I was probably ready for that and it was something that I was really excited about. So I, I didn't um, relocate, I ran it out of Melbourne and um, obviously worked hand in hand with Bob for that two, two year period from 2010 to about 2012. Um, as the sales director, so did, did a, a period there. And then obviously after that, and I'll, I can continue on if you want me to. Um, Keep going, mate. I went from uh, JLG at the back end of 2012, just felt like I needed a little bit of a break, had a young family, was traveling a lot, um, and, and I was offered a role with uh, a private rental business in Melbourne as the general manager, family business, um, you know, a, a good-sized fleet, a reputable business, um, and a really reputable industry leader, which was Tim Nuttall. So I, and there was, there was a family connection there, so I'd known Tim for a long time, just through, some, through family, and uh, really respect Tim's opinions on business and, and the, the way that he conducts his business. I think it, it was a great learning curve for me. So I went in there, the back end of 2012, um, and was appointed, as I said, GM. and and did a a two year stint, Uh, it was interesting, I really really enjoyed that role, Um, it was something very different and coming from the OEM back to the rental space, um, it gave me an appreciation of the way not just JLG but all the OEMs uh, interact back with the rental companies and Mm -hmm. and the perception and and, and especially coming out of an OEM for that four year period into a private rental company. and so, uh, did the, the two-year period. We sort of did a bit of resetting in the business. Uh, did you know all, all the things you do day to day around you know um, restructure people, uh, customer base, uh, reset the sales program. Really enjoyed that. Um, and then um, after about eighteen months, I, I probably got a little bit itchy feet. Um, the in regards to uh, not that I didn't feel challenged. I just I, I probably felt like what was going to be next. And um, you know, obviously Tim's got a business. Um, it was a fantastic opportunity but my dna sometimes is i get a little bit itchy in terms of um, i didn't want to be bored and i wouldn't say i was bored but I, I probably felt there was an element every now and then where um i maybe didn't feel like he always needed me in terms of um not because he didn't want me there i just maybe felt like we'd reset it it was ready to go so what's next if that makes sure. sense so it wasn't a negative the one thing that was good and um i know you've asked me about this, is. I had lots of really great conversations with Tim around life and um, people and uh, behaviour, I suppose. And one of the things that really came with Tim was we spoke about um, the whole study piece, and um, I think you, you and I were talking about it off 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 air before. And um, I I felt like I was a little bit lost if if I'm being really candid with you, and I and I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And Tim and I remember sitting with him and said, "I'm not sure what I'm going to do," and um, but in the meantime, I think I probably need to think about this, this and this with my career. And we started talking about those sorts of things. And in the end, I, I, I remember walking out of there. I said, I need to go and study and I want to get better and I want to be better. And I didn't want to be left behind. And I didn't want to be one of those guys that go, yeah, Scott's a good guy, but he's, he's a good guy. What's he going to do next? And I'm that's probably been my DNA. I get a bit antsy like that. And um, I, I just felt that yeah, I didn't want to be left behind. What was I going to do next? So Tim really pushed me to hey, why don't you go and study? Why don't you go and look at things a little bit different? You've run a family business, you've been a sales director an OEM, maybe study is a good thing. So that, that was one thing I really enjoyed. I went and studied the back end of working for Tim and then obviously in the conversations we had at, at length and as of being really candid with you, um, I spoke about what I was gonna do next and just by chance um, my old job came back up at JLG <laughs> as a sales director and I was lucky enough to, um, I suppose, Get my old job back uh, after two years out of the out of the business, and um, and Bob and I, Bob Mules, who was the GM, and um, had some long conversations. And you know, he asked me if I wanted to come back, and you know, I sort of jumped at it as quick as I can, and I've been back ever since. So I I, I heard the rumor was that you just were missing Bob mate. Well, yeah, (laughs) you you, you know what, and um, uh, yeah, it's true. Like we've got a fantastic relationship, and um, you know, we were we're as thick as thieves for a long time. Absolutely, but. Not not in the wrong way, like the amount of respect I got for that guy is through the roof. And it's funny, you know, like he's been gone from JLG for uh, just, I would say, I think the back end of 2019, Bob moved on and wanted to do something different. But, you know, the one thing that I would always say is you make fantastic relationships in this industry and it has a unique ability to pull people together. But I'm not sure um, that I've met a better guy than Bob over my journey in my career. I've you know, met some fantastic people, but we just clicked, and we still do. Like you know, it's funny. Like I still talk to him weekly about family, footy, sport, um, all those different things. But he's just a, a great person, mm-hmm. and um, as, he was great to work for. But I think more importantly, he was just a really genuine person, person. And you know, we we have a fantastic relationship, and I've got the utmost respect for him. And to be fair, I, I loved working with him because we just clicked it absolutely clicked so yeah, yeah. That was good now, a couple of stories
2: about both those individuals actually so we'll, we'll go with tim first yeah so uh, there, there's not many people in the industry someone like tim nuttle he's a uh, he's a true veteran and the, the time he makes for people is something that i really respect like yeah. i remember i would have been maybe 23 24 years old uh i was going down to melbourne I booked a site visit to go see Tim and then he, he gave me like an hour and a half and he was drawn on a whiteboard and he was telling me this and telling me that and trying to teach me all this stuff. And here I'm thinking like, isn't this guy meant to be like an industry legend? Like why is he giving <laughs> this young 23 year old like an hour and a half? And like every time I see him, he's always so friendly and, and, he's just a down-to-earth person so I have a lot of time for Tim
1: yeah absolutely and it was funny I caught up with him um, yesterday at the show we were just chatting and I, he was telling me how he's part of I think a mentoring or networking program and um, I think whoever has the opportunity to be mentored by him or have some sort of coaching and development by Tim you, you could learn a hell of a lot and yeah it was funny I, and I think about lots of stories about when I worked for him there was always a bit of paper and a drawing and a yeah, scribble he loves drawings and we'd, we'd always get there in the end but you know, and as, and. as and it was really insightful. And he always, and yeah, and and he, and he won't mind me saying this, but he always has a story about the point he's trying to make, right? Yeah. And um, and the one thing that I learnt from Tim, and that is, when it's your own money, you look at things differently. And so I went from an OEM, where you know you're accountable, you're responsible, but you're working for a global brand. But when you get back in a family rental business, every dollar counts. Um, you need to look at things in a in a different sense. And I think teaching me, that value of money um, when it's your own and it's a family business, it probably is looked at a little bit differently sometimes, if that makes sense. Yeah,
2: yeah. So you're saying you tighten the reins at JLG, oh. though? you're saying? Oh,
1: <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe. Oh, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. But certainly, I think bringing that back into that sure. cold corporate, no, I understand. corporate I'm, I'm sense. Just, I'm just jeezing no no, 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 I get it. I completely get it. And um, But Ned, I, I learned a hell of a lot from him, absolutely. Yeah.
2: And then on Bob, like obviously another another legend of in the industry, and and just a story with him. I remember I was working with JLG doing doing a lot of work with Simone, yeah, yeah. and um, she was pretty happy with some of the stuff I was doing. I remember I went to the JLG office in Sydney, and there was a lot of heavy hitters in this room. I'm like, like CFO, uh, like a bunch of senior leaders in the in the office, and I was just there as like again a pretty young 25 year old, mm. just sort of in the corner taking notes basically, just on sort a of fly on the wall, and then. Bob sort of made the effort to sort of pause and say, Mark, I just want to really thank you for the, the mm-hmm. work that you do with JLG. Stuff like that plays a big part in someone's career, like knowing like, the appreciation that someone puts out there. And I think he's really good at that.
1: Oh, 100%. And, you know, it's funny, and hopefully some of uh, that is rubbed off on all of us, but, you know, it's funny, you still go to branches at JLG around Australia, and one of the things they always talk about is when he did use work at JLG, He'd, the first thing he'd do, he'd get to a branch, and we'd we'd all try and do it. Is put your, your laptop bag down, and he'd walk the whole facility, and he'd talk to everyone. So reality is, whether you're the CEO or you're the storeman or you're the parts interpreter or a field tech, we, we've all got a part to play, and we all and we're you need to treat everyone the same way. And and mm. I think that's a real lesson we need to learn sometimes, all of us. And um, you know, I think just seeing people interact and everyone knows everyone, and I'm not I'm not a big fan of that. That corporate hierarchy. Sometimes I think sure. reality is we need to be all in in the trenches and working together. Sometimes, and mm. I think that was that was his real wheelhouse, building those relationships. Absolutely. Yeah, and so your role today—it sounds like you sort of took on Bob's Bob's role. So where yeah. are you here today? So so uh, did, was back in the sales director role from 2014, 15, all the way to 2019. Um, Bob moved on back end of 2019. I, I filled in from an interim point of view, uh, which has had a small sort of exec team that was running it. Um, I filled in, filled in for uh, about three months and was then basically appointed as the GM early 2020. Um, and I've been in that role ever since. So Melbourne-based, um, seven locations, six are branches. The, the seventh one is a manufacturing facility in Port Macquarie. Uh, we've got about 240 plus staff nationally, all JLG employees, plus some contractors when we, we bring people in with workload. Um, and obviously uh, a team of about 14 or 15 senior leaders which include you know exec team branch leaders um, national people in national roles got a fantastic bunch of people um, really committed to what we do and um, I think it's it's reasonably well set at the moment obviously we've all got challenges with the the way the world's been and I think we're all going through the same pain I think last night we probably all had the same conversations about people labor parts componentry shipping all those sorts of things so it's been a fairly common theme the last 24 hours but yeah been in that jam role for two years and, and feel um, and really enjoying it it's been it's been great and to be fair because I worked so close with the likes of um, our CFO and um, our um, people leaders and and Bob in the past I was really comfortable taking the role because right. I knew the business reasonably well anyway so um, you probably look at it a little bit different because you're not in one lane but you, you, you certainly look at it differently day to day but um, yeah no, I've really enjoyed it so yeah, it's been good. And so you mentioned the study component. So you're yeah. working through these roles, and then
2: you're you're doing your MBA yeah. at the same time. So, look, h- how you, how did you manage oh.
1: studying and working full time, and how, how did that sort of oh, plan out? Well, well, if my hair's anything to go by, Mark, that was probably the start <laughs> of it. But um, I I started the MBA um, back end, as I said, early 2014, and I'd only done a couple of months when I left Access Hire to go back to JLG. So both um, Tim Nuttall at Access Hire and Bob Mules, I had conversations with both of them and they were really hospitable towards a little bit of flexibility with the study. Um, I'll be upfront, I I just did, I couldn't see myself doing it over 12 months. Absolute kudos to the guys that can do it over 12 months. It's, uh, there was no way I could do it. One, because of family commitments, travel, all those sorts of things. So I just did it over a a couple of years in, in seven month blocks, I think it was. Um, and I found it uh, really rewarding, but it was the most challenging thing I've ever done in my life. And I remember, I think the second year, speaking to basically you have a mentor through the the university you go to or where you do it, and I almost remember saying to him, oh, I just I just can't do this. I, I, not because I didn't know how to do it, I just felt overwhelmed with work and family and trying to get this stuff done. But you just find a way, and you and it and it and it got done. And it's probably always been something that is um is probably part of me you probably sometimes sit there and go geez how am i going to get this done but you know what two weeks later you look back and we go yeah we got through it all and 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 it made sense but um it was it was a really big commitment and you basically had to be really disciplined with your weeks so i knew i had to study monday nights after work tuesday nights after work wednesdays i'd have thursdays off um kids' sport and all that sort of stuff. So I'd just work, I wouldn't study Thursday nights. And then I'd basically be back into it all day Saturday and I'd have half a Sunday off. And I was probably doing 25, 30 hours a week in study plus the sales director role. So I wasn't GM back then, I was still sales director. Um, and then Bob was really good with some stuff. The weeks so I wasn't traveling, I'd basically divert my phone Thursdays and study all day and then turn it back on Thursday night and catch up on all my work that at night. From jail jeep uh, mm. sense because no one would be ringing you and bob was really good so basically it was a, a subject a month an exam a month and you just go for it and then a thesis style project at the end but as i said it was the hardest thing i ever did and um and, and there was times i really questioned myself but uh, it was really rewarding as well at the end so, so how, how do you think you got through that was it was it making sure you were just opening up and being honest with
2: yourself and everyone was it uh, more making sure that you're not Pushing yourself too far. Like, what were some of the things that you
1: think? Oh, it, d, d, the, I think I think the biggest thing was just being really disciplined. Like having having really good milestones, being really disciplined, um, making sure you're stuck to your timelines, um, working to a process. Um, you know, it was an, a the, the MBA was an applied um, a sort of a, a real life MBA, so you apply it back to a lot of the work that you do on a daily basis. So basically, every subject related to um, what you do right now so you might do a, um, a marketing uh, subject for a month and then the projects based around tell us something from a marketing sense in your business and then the exam when you get there is three or four questions you have to answer at length for a couple of hours you sit there but um to be honest mate it was just being really disciplined and and, and having really good milestones and timelines yeah. you just wrote down on the answer sponsor the rental journal
0: podcast yeah, that, <laughs> that's the marketing plan yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely so,
1: but um yeah as I said um, yeah, something I look back and and um, I, I'm not sure it's made me any, any smarter. It probably taught me a few different things, um, but for me, um, I, I probably was really pleased that I got through it. And I look back now and go, oh, credit to anyone who's ever done yeah. it. And um, yeah, and especially when you're working full time, that's the difference. When you mm. if you if you happen to be on a twelve month break and you just get it through, it well, it's basically almost like a full time job. Yeah. But to get through That sort of stuff, absolutely credit to anyone who's ever done it before. So Ian Coleman
2: spoke about uh, planning a little bit on his podcast. And something he said, like, really uh, I thought was interesting. And it would be really good, like, to sort of use an analogy of what you're talking about at the same time. So he was mentioning that he would go to board meetings and it would all be about, we haven't achieved enough, we need to achieve more, this is what we're going to do. And it's very important to make sure that when you go to these board meetings, you reflect on what you have achieved, in the past like quarter, couple quarters, whatever it is. Cause sometimes you sort of you forget how much you've actually done. And like when you look back at you completing your, your MBA while working, mm. it almost seems like a distant memory oh, now. hundred percent. But you could easily just uh, not appreciate the effort that goes into it. And so it's really important to like reflect on sort of where you've come from over that period of time. I thought it was a really interesting way to think about board meetings. Yeah, and, and it's
1: it's funny you say that. I remember um, when we, when I was lucky enough to be appointed in the GM role and there were some things that I thought we just needed to get through and I remember having a, a, a list um, that I knew would take a while to work through and they were the really critical things in the business, you know, resetting some, some challenges we needed to fix up in spots and um, you're forever looking at those lists outside of your day-to-day things and, I, and we had some real tick-offs we needed to get done and you're right, you sort of revisit them now and you might have one left that it's taken you a year to get through that list. Because they're, they're big things outside of what you do day to day and you know, your customer interaction and your teamwork, it, it, the stuff you do with your teams. But um, yeah, absolutely, I, I think sometimes we don't reflect and we probably don't um, look back and go, hey guys, this is where we're at, but look at all the things we've actually got done. And I think in business sometimes you can get caught up in going, geez, things are really tough at the moment or you know, we've got this, this and this is a challenge but don't lose sight of what you've actually achieved. On like mm. some, and, and I'm probably sitting here thinking about our business with our team, and I've had these conversations with our leaders before where I say, yeah, it's that's tough right now, but look at all the other things you've ticked off. So yeah, I think it's a really good point. Um, so talk about a little,
2: JLG a little bit more. So I, I know that you have a, a magazine that goes out, JLG yeah. Insight, which is, which is amazing, I um, yep. always check it out. And I was looking through some of the, the uh, items in the in the content, and one in particular that caught my attention was the, um, the offering um, around Service Plus. Yep. So, I, I'd be interested just to understand like what that what that means, and and what does it mean for your
1: customers, and what what the difference like, the norm. Yeah. Is. So so Service Plus. So we've always we've got a huge aftermarket business. Um, you know, near on 150 people split across the business nationally. Um, service spare parts rebuilds used equipment those sorts of things so our aftermarket business is, is really quite large um, one of the things we really wanted to put together was how do you actually not not only use the word own the customer but how do you almost become part of the customers day-to-day business so we wanted to come up with a, um, a program around our service business which obviously we badged as service plus and it has Two offerings, obviously a, pre- a preventative offering and a comprehensive, and it's all around basically it's a, it's a it's a dedicated service and, and sales package around um, the equipment's due for service, um, we'll manage it for the we'll manage the asset for the customer. It's built into an automated schedule. Um, it, it's, it, it supports a customer from a, le, a legislation point of view, a, a, um, a servicing point of view, um, you know, making sure the machine meets requirements before it gets on site. So basically it's almost like we take the hassle out of the service process for the customer and it's a, um, it's a program that's, that's very new to us but um, we're really trying to drive across across the, um, the network across Australia and New Zealand at the moment. So you, know, you buy a machine, essentially we then look after the service piece for you across the years the, the of the assets life. Mm.
2: Yeah, and that, I mean you spoke about our uh, reps when in the field having like multiple streams now 100%. to push, and so that sort of uh, gives them a bit of an opportunity to, to try and diversify what they're what they're doing in the field as yeah, well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So our service business, our coordinators in the office, you know, and and with the base plane program, which obviously you're really familiar with, um, all the services will come up each week that are flagged. A lot of them are service plus style customers. Mr. Customer, your machine's now due for a service. We're on the way out. This is the current. Um, things that needs done um, and a lot of that's already prepaid so the customer prepays and they, they know the upfront costs, they know the outlay uh, and we're managing the asset for the customer. Mm. So we've kept it really simple, a couple of different offerings around um, what we can do for the customer and um, as I said it's it's really about being part of the customer's journey buying a JLG machine. Yeah
2: and then I saw there was a few new machines that came out as well, some rough, rough terrain machines and there was the da Vinci
1: line as well. Yep.
2: What's some new machines? Yeah, so the,
1: the rough terrain piece is really exciting for us. Um, we always had that um, big deck, uh, 94 inch wide um, offering, 33, 43, 53 RT scissor. Um, but the the key line in in I suppose, in the Australian New Zealand market has always been that rough terrain compact style machine, 26, 33 foot, huge market. And to be fair, a market that we had it, we had an offering that was probably a little bit tired, the machine in terms of some of the feature function benefits of that machine. So the exciting thing is, in the last um, 12 months, we've released um, eight models across two different power sources. So four rough terrain models in diesel rough terrain, and four electric rough terrain models. So we go 26, 33, 40, and 47 foot, but in a 69 inch uh, deck. Um, and, that, and that is the that is the, the the market that's the the biggest in regards to a sales volume point of view. And to be fair. A market that within reason jlg hadn't been in for a long time so that's really exciting for us we've actually got one here at the show on the stand which is great um the challenge you know like like everyone's seeing is the, the supply and the demand um are probably um the challenge in regards to to getting the product here at the moment but it's probably just as exciting that we've now got something to offer our customer base which is good mm. and then are more machines going to slowly move into that da vinci side yeah uh, i think so i think the da vinci bit. um it's It's been um, well accepted in the US with a couple of the big rental houses. Uh, I know Sunbelt's bought a lot of the Da Vinci 19-foot all-electric machine. So that whole all-electric piece, the, the benefits are, you know, the whole zero emission, low noise, low cost of ownership, but, um, you know, oil spills and all those sorts of things within reason are a thing of the past. We haven't seen a machine here yet. We haven't got any on the ground as yet. But I think... As, you know, the the next few years really transpire, that whole electrification, all electric style machine, that's the way the industry is absolutely heading.
2: Mm. And then the machine that I've always found interesting is the compact crawler because it's a bit of an optical illusion. Yeah. Like it comes in and it's it's sort of so compact and then it sort of expands out and you're like...
1: That's like a transformer sort of thing. So maybe we talk about the compact crawlers a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in about 2011, JLG went into a joint alliance with Hinoa. So Hinoa, uh, the manufacturer of the compact crawler booms. Um, We bring them into Australia as a Hinoa product, but um, badged as a JLG machine. So the machines are made in Italy. Um, I think the the first thing that stands out about those machines is just the build quality, fantastic build quality. I think the next thing that stands out, and you've probably touched on is um, we're starting to see more and more people want that style of machine. Um, lots of feature, function, benefits. You know, basket capacity, the way they pack up really tight. Um, we run a range between 13 meter to to, um, to over 30 meter machine. And reality is, they all go through a doorway, so they they look like a quite a really compact machine, yeah. but. When you get the the machine outlaid with the footprint, um, the outriggers out, you know you, you're getting 33 metres out of the biggest machine we offer right now. So, yeah, amazing bit of amazing bit of kit. Um, you know, the whole emission piece, drive source. You know, we we bring out a petrol machine, a diesel, and a lithium. We do some hybrid stuff. All the, I'll start again. We do a bioenergy model uh, in a 33 metre. But yeah, some real some real features of those machines that um, I think the customers are, are really sort of gravitating to and uh, i know there's a couple of brands out on the market and we're seeing more and more of that stuff Mm. come in so it's been good
2: especially the transport side i think being able to transport it between sites is is really important like the doorway is obviously like a really good piece but like being able to quickly move it from site a to site b is is a big plus oh
1: absolutely you know you've got the outriggers but obviously that the tracks extend gives you that stability when you're you're moving across a site um yeah couldn't agree more but um you know whether it's um the floor loading piece is a big thing as well. I think, you know, some of the indoor atrium work that those machines can do, the lithium-style machine, no emissions. We're seeing lots of those sort of customers take those machines up as well. But, yeah, incredible bit of kit, uh, and we've got a really solid range now across that.
2: Now, you touched on supply a little bit, and it's probably yeah. the, the biggest question that you're probably getting <laughs> at the trade show at the yeah. moment. So so how is JOG managing the supply
1: supply chaos at the moment, and, and what's the current state? Uh, it's tough. It's really tough. And it's. Um, I think it's... Um, it's just about visibility. And sometimes right now, we just don't have a lot of visibility and things just are ever changing. So it's probably a couple of different ways to answer it. The, from a new machine front, um, I think uh, we're doing as well as we can. We've got um, you know, a, a really solid backlog of work, which is great, but unfortunately, you know, and we're being, being really candid on this podcast is, we're seeing delivery dates change rapidly and constantly. And a lot of that's just through um, uh, sourcing a componentry at factories. Um, and obviously we're doing a lot of dual sourcing at the moment, but um, we are just working through those challenges which then come down the line around timing and when machines are going to arrive. So that's been, that's been uh, a challenge. How are we dealing with it? I think we are just being as upfront as we can with our customers. Number one, we're trying to forward order as, as, as quick as we can, um, but I think within reason a lot of the challenges we've got um, we can't control, and as I said, a lot of it's factory sourcing um, components, uh, COVID's played a huge part across the U.S. and our, our factories in other in other locations, um, and then the labour shortage as well. So um, yeah, there's, there's probably a myriad of, of things that are really challenging us at the moment.
2: Yeah, probably the one thing that's sort of helping all the OEMs is that everyone's suffering. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like it's just one OEM that's yeah. suffering. And and,
1: a... and and you could and I agree. You could sit here and go, well, it's not just us; it's everyone. But I'm not sure. I, I love, um, and I'm being really tra- uh, tr- transparent with you. Um, you don't want to be that OEM but unfortunately we are at the moment and we're all in it and we've just got to work through it as well as we can I think that the challenge will be is what the cost fluctuation looks like over the next 12 18 months versus um, the bringing the machines in so that that's definitely a real challenge for, I think globally for all OEMs at the moment mm.
2: now something exciting was uh, Port Macquarie 20 years uh, yeah, love it. it's, yeah. it's uh, maybe not everyone knows that you actually uh, manufacture locally in Australia as well so Twenty years. Uh, do you want to just talk a little bit? About what is what's up in Port Macquarie? Yeah. What do you do up there, and what's the current
1: situation? So yeah, it's a good story, really good story, and something that I think um, always been really excited about. And I love talking about Port Macquarie. We've got a great bunch of people there. We've been there since 1983. Um, we've been manufacturing towers for about 20 years. So between 83 and uh, the early 2000s, we were maybe more of a manuf- uh, we were a service business. Uh, we used to assemble all those sorts of things the last light, twenty light, lighting towers that yeah, is, yeah. Uh, no but that lighting towers only the last 20 years before that it was all servicing um, putting machines together we used to bring machines in and then assemble them here like access mm. machines um, the last 20 years has been all things lighting towers and that was I think and originally I think the original story was um, as an offset for when we were quiet we'll build lighting towers and it's evolved from there since the early 2000s um, as I said we run Uh, about three different departments in Port Macquarie before we touch on lighting towers. We run an engineering team up there, um, which is a a couple of of key people in our business. We run tech services. So tech services, it's all about internally supporting our team, but also externally. So we've got three or four uh, key team members that basically are on the phones, full time, supporting our customers with breakdowns and those sort of things. We've also got some tech services guys in some of our branches, so collectively they do a ripping job. We've got, a, And then obviously on top of that, uh, we've got a service business in Port, all things rebuilds, major inspections and, and those things. And then the, the big piece up there is the manufacturing facility. So probably run a team of about 30 um, in manufacturing, um, engineering, leadership, operations, um, and then obviously all the guys on the line. So um, we we build from ground up. The lighting towers in Port, Port Macquarie, um, locally built, locally designed. Uh, there is no interaction globally in terms of um, in terms of that manufacturing piece the most exciting thing is it's all done here it's absolutely all done here we source a lot of parts locally um, in Australia um, which is great Uh, but the most exciting thing for me and I'm really proud of the guys up there all the guys up there is it's 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 local it's in-house and we really own it and we take ownership we've got about um, three or four models key models that we sell to market and on top of that we've got an R&D team up there as well so we've got three or four new models in the pipeline and then obviously some associated products we make trailers um, and then we do some custom work for um some customers as well
2: yeah and i've noticed there's been a lot of investment up there yeah. as well so i saw there was a full solar panel
1: uh, power system yeah yeah it's a, that's a little bit of a funny, uh, funny in-house story but one of our um our tech services lead um he's really focused on that whole sustainability and we've done a lot of work on sustainability around all our facilities but you know he was really passionate about that solar piece and we had an opportunity to invest some money in solar so we put about 200 and, um about 220 panels on the roof at Port Macquarie uh, gives us about uh, 100 kilowatts of power. It's funny, it creates enough power that we can actually put power back into the grid with the stuff that we we don't use. So that's been a great story, uh, a really good story around sustainability. And and we got some real, um, which was exciting, we got some real um, uh, kudos from... Uh, Oshkosh globally, which was great. Um, I thought that was terrific in regards to um, you know being a, a, a small piece of the Oshkosh and JLG family globally um, around the solar piece to get some some real credit was awesome. So that's been a, a good story for the solar piece. The other thing we probably have really been talking about is you know for us to really grow and evolve and get bigger, better, faster. Is we just needed to invest in the facility um, in terms of capacity so we're doing some work at the moment on um, expansion um, more buildings to, to manufacture. that'll give us more opportunity to build more lines and or have more production lines putting some additional paint booths in um, right now we're probably at capacity in regards to painting so it, it then um, slows our line up so um, and we'll do some other work in regards to just just general office fit outs and those sorts of things so I think between the, the key leadership across um, our, our Port Macquarie piece and our exec team, we've probably realised for us to really grow to the next step is we probably just need to invest in the facility a little bit more and it's well underway and it's, it's really exciting for our business and I think I think for any business and I'm sure you've seen the, the same things where you've worked and even some of the guys you've spoken to on the podcast is um, I think sometimes when you invest in businesses and your team see that, it's it also gives them a real kick around where we're heading as a business, mm. and um, I think that's really exciting as well. So I'm really proud of the guys in Port Macquarie. I think they've done an unbelievable job. Um, it's it's having the same supply chain challenges that globally we are, and it's frustrating, and it can be really tough, but um, yeah, we're pretty well placed at the moment with all things lighting towers and manufacturing, which is great. Awesome. All right, well, let's, uh, let's learn a little bit more about
2: Scott. So you've already answered probably part of this, but we'll, there's probably some other people that you want to mention. So who do you think played a big influence on you from a, from a mentor perspective?
1: Oh, I, I probably touched on a few. And you know, like I've been in the industry, you know, just call it tw- 20 years. So I, I probably touched on a few and I'll, and I'll probably revisit a couple of names. But as I said, just really briefly, the, the, the Coleman um, family were terrific to me and, and still um, fantastic that we, we interact and we, we're really, really good friends. But, you know, Doug and Ian, or um, well, Ian and Doug, Doug was the sales director at, uh, at um, Complant, Ian was the MD. Um, they, would, they just had really good family values. They were just a really good family business that, that, was, that had, was going through some real growth and, um, and ter- terrific people. They were really fair. They had, as I said, they had really good values and uh, they were really good to work for. And, it's, and um, I, I think I learned a lot. As, and it was a great grounding from, a, from a, a starting off point of view. So they were terrific. Um, obviously Tim, still talk to Tim. More about life than anything else. I really don't talk about all things JLG too much with him. I sort of leave that to the guys that look after his account, if that makes sense. And um, but you know, he's been terrific in terms of just having some good conversations about life and Scott and behaviour and what I can do better. And you know, sometimes maybe where I'm at. I still have those conversations, and it's funny. Even though we worked together and he was the boss, um, I actually think we have a better relationship now than we did when I worked for him. And that's probably quite common in business. I found that I find that really interesting. I touched on Bob, as I said, it's pretty straightforward. We just clicked. It was just a good personal relationship. And I think the key one for me is um, I was really lucky. Um, grew up in the southeast of Melbourne. Mum and Dad were, Mum, mum ran uh, uh, a sporting aquatic centre with 80 staff. But um, my old man was a school principal and um, he's just retired and the hardest worker I ever saw. I think if um, anyone who's either married or knows a school teacher, I think it's really unrewarding. Sometimes the amount of hours they put in, it's incredible. But Dad was a school principal, um, the biggest one of the biggest schools in the southeast of Melbourne, and was just addicted to work. And um, you know, I still talk to him about work things now. And um, you know, it's funny he's retired, but he's actually gone back to work, not in that industry because he's bored. And um, yeah. I, I probably got a little bit that a bit of that off him um, in terms of that whole go go go, which is not always a great thing, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I've had some 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 great mentors slash people to lean on over the over the period and I think if I could also add I, I think this industry specifically there's so many unbelievable customers business owners people that are in different positions I've met some incredible people over the journey and um, I think you can take little snippets of, mm. of everyone some people have some real aura some people sit back and they just get it done and, and say very little you know, there's a wealth of knowledge in this industry, um, and it's ever changing. I think that's the exciting thing. But it's a really unique industry that sort of brings everyone together. But as I said, to back on your question, yeah, you know, I've met some terrific people on, uh, across across my my um, my journey in the in, in the equipment OEM space. It's been terrific. Yeah. So let's talk about
2: energy a little bit because you definitely have energy. So <laughs> yeah. you. you um You've got that passion. You've got that drive. You, you, I feel like your energy brings everyone else's energy up. Uh, um, how, first, let's go from one side. Where does that energy come from? And then the other side. How do you sort of de-energize and relax?
1: Like you said, like what do you sort of do in that space? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, oh, I've just been a pretty positive guy all my life, and you know, just. Uh, I um, yeah I think you've got to bring a vibe to the situation or and you've got to sort of try and empower your your team and personally I I just didn't, I love working with people I think it's I think it's great so from an energy point of view I think when you're a leader of a business if you're going to drag your heels the reality is the the troops behind you are going to drag their heels as well right so you've just got to set the tone set the example and and just enjoy what you do but you know really try and um, Create a culture where it's it's a, it's a good environment. That so, but yeah, I am pretty passionate about what I do, and I and I and I probably do get a bit excited. But it, it's 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 for the right reasons, I suppose. so, yeah. yeah. And what about uh, relaxing, oh, pulling back? Because you can't be oh, and you, you can't be one
2: hundred and ten percent all times.
1: Oh, and you know what? I've really struggled with that, and it was conversations I used to have with Bob, uh, I, I, and and um, and probably my wife. I've, I've, I, and I still struggle with that if I was really pers- being completely transparent with you. Um, I find um, I find, you, know, you have your, your working week and you do your, your family stuff on the weekend but by about one o'clock on a Sunday I'm biting my nails ready to go again and um, so quite often I'll sit there Sunday afternoons getting ready for the week and I'm sure there's heaps of people that do the same thing in our industry and, and business alike so I'm sure it's not new but I, I, I probably struggle still personally where I can feel myself getting a bit antsy um, ready to go like, like playing in a grand final I suppose um, <laughs> on a Sunday before the before the week starts and and to be really candid with you I, I still probably struggle with that uh, and I don't think I ever hit a flat spot but um, it's something I'm I'm trying to probably get better at mm-hmm. um, and probably sometimes uh, try to take it all and do it all myself and you probably got to probably got to try and s- spread that and just realise you just can't be everything to everyone but um, you know personally it's certainly something that I'm I would say I'm reasonably self-aware of it, but I need to get better at it. And probably more so from a family sense than anything else. It, it, I mean, um, sometimes I've probably had the priority, priorities the wrong way around, if, that, mm. if that's fair. And I'm being completely candid
2: with you. Yeah, no, even with me, like we have Josh now, six months old mm. and like whenever I'm rushing for work or I'm doing something, can I see him? I, I, I I think to myself, like I don't want to like walk past that
1: moment and not yeah. interact with him. Mm. It's so easy to get lost in work. Oh, it is, it is. Oh, so I've got a 14 year old uh, daughter, uh, been married 22 years. Um, and I I get accused quite often at home of not listening because I, I think after you've had a huge, huge day, sometimes you get home and they tell you something and at the end of they go, were you listening? And um, and um, and it's and I need, as I said, I need to get better at that stuff. And um, and I think um, I probably had a little bit of a, and I probably still like a, I don't know if the word is compulsive, but I'll use it, like a compulsive behaviour that I just felt like I just need to keep going, going, going. And you know, that's that passion bit, I suppose, that I'm really passionate about the job and the brand and the people. But yeah, it's certainly something that I'd like to think that over time, maybe it's something I get better at. I tell you what, I think
2: every business wants to hear one of their employees say, "Sunday night is like preparing for the grand
1: final of upcoming <laughs> week." That's such a great analogy, like that. That that shows how much you love what you do. Oh yeah, and you've got to like you know, and you, and if you don't love what you do, <laughs> go and do something else. That's probably the right answer. But um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, it's it's you've just got to enjoy what you do, and um, and and there's so many opportunities as well. So mm. I, I think that's the exciting thing about this industry. Yeah
2: and so how many years have
1: you been coming to the the higher 22 or oh, the higher convention in general oh probably i tw- uh, probably i would have said 20 2009 all the way to obviously this year obviously i think we missed one or two with COVID and all those sorts of things yeah. so yeah we it's good to be back in adelaide um obviously done lots of different locations and all those sorts of things but yeah it's good good to see so many people as well yeah
2: so what do you typically get the most out of these sort of events
1: oh uh, you know I, I just think that it's just great from a networking point of view i think um this you you get to see everyone at once unfortunately you probably have lots of 10 minute conversations because there's so many people that you see around the um around the show but i think for us it's it's obviously about exhibiting got some new products some new technology but it's around just um making sure that you um see all the key people you want to see and and have a look for what the industry is doing you know technology Mm -hmm. changes advancements all those sorts of things but for me and probably touched on it earlier just about networking really that whole networking piece and for our guys here we've got a crew of five or six guys here, I think it's good for them. Some of them don't travel that often, so they're in national roles in central locations. So they get to see some of the customers face-to-face that they probably talk to them on the phone more often.
2: Mm. I was talking about this yesterday a little bit. Uh, when, when I was younger, I used to think that trade shows was all about just standing in a booth and watching people walk past and <laughs> throw business cards at them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I realised one day, wait a second, like it's actually about networking. 100%. Um, but I think a lot of people don't know how to network. They they struggle with um, it's, it's almost like you know people struggle with cold calling. Mm. They struggle with like walking up to someone and like talking to them, someone they don't know. You obviously don't have that problem. <laughs> you talk yeah. underwater. But yeah. if you've got like a rep that works uh, within JLG and and they're struggling at these sort of events, like what advice do you normally give them?
1: Oh, I think you just need to leverage your, your fellow teammates and try and go in a different angle and a different direction with someone that maybe you don't have a relationship with. So mm-hmm. find a different angle um, and, just, and just keep persevering. I, I think we, we used to talk about that whole sales process where you go once, you go twice, you go three times. By the time you go back, they go, this guy's fair income. he actually wants to see me. So I think quite often in sales, we go once and they say no. So you think, well, it's, it's done. You've just got to keep persevering with that person. I think you, you've got to be careful you don't oversell it and all those sorts of things. But I think, um, yeah, you just got to work on different techniques, different ways to break down those relationships. And it's funny, I was talking to a customer this morning on the stand, and I think we spoke about everything but JLG for 25 minutes, and I think one minute was about JLG. And I think that's the beauty of not just this industry, but if you've got a great relationship, the the product piece will sell itself, Mm -hmm. And, and so will what the customer needs. But everything else should be about what they've been up to, how's their family, you know, the, the, the commonality you have with that person who you've known for so long. And that's and that's something that I think that, um, we've got some fantastic guys that do it in our business really well, or team members I should say. And then we've got other people that are just coming through the business and learning. But the ones that are learning, you've just got to persevere. I think it's about persevering. And I think sometimes we give up too easily. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's just a, just a process. Yeah. So if you could give some advice to, to young Scotty, <laughs> <laughs> what would you say? Um, I would say, I would say the first thing is do what you love and do something that you're really passionate about. Don't don't drag the chain if it's not for you and you're you're not feeling it. Go and do something that makes you happy. I think there's nothing worse than probably getting home each night and feeling miserable because one you got to go to work, but two you don't enjoy it. So I think that's the first thing. I think um, I, I, I'm not sure um, advice for young self. I, I think. Um, just to keep, just evaluate situations that are all in, fr- in front of you the right way. If I was critiquing myself, and I probably have a little bit, which is which is something I'm, as I said, i really aware of, is um, just think about the way you make decisions. I'm probably a little bit gun ho sometimes, and I've really learnt from that. I think sometimes when I first took the GM role, you'd make a decision because you want to keep the business moving, and then two days later you'd go, we can't undo that. Um, so. Um, let's just think about decisions a, a, a little bit better. So, from a young self, um, you know, enjoy what you do. Think about the decisions and think about the longevity of the decisions and what you, and how you make them. Um, get a really good mentor or get some good mentors to and, and get, get some good experience and some advice off people. Um, and um, yeah, just just enjoy the journey. I suppose mm. that's probably the right message. Yeah. So, and so, so how do you define success? Um, I think success for me is um, really around um, seeing an outcome that you wanted to achieve and seeing it, um, I suppose, come to fruition. But you've also got to accept that sometimes those outcomes that you wanted to achieve aren't, aren't going to happen or they, they couldn't happen for, for different reasons. But that's okay because sometimes you know you've put everything into it um, So, but and, and you've come out the other end but you've, you've given it your best shot. But I think it's really around outcome um having stepping stones to get there and then seeing it put in place and actually come to fruition, first thing. I think the other key thing for me is, and um, you I know, played a lot of team sport, um, uh, both my folks played team sport, I thrive on seeing my team or our guys be really successful. You know, Someone will ring you and go, I just got this really good deal and um, I've been chipping away at this customer for two or three years and, and you can feel the energy on the phone and I feel like, um, that is a really good definition of success because there's there's a win for that person, but it gives them a real leg up mm. m- moving forward in regards to you know being really comfortable with what they do and being successful in our business. And if I apply it to JLG, I think that we had two of the toughest years that we've ever had, all of us have, COVID, lockdowns, all those sorts of things. But some of our team has well, all of our team's done an amazing job. And I think the definition of success for me a lot of the time is just around teamwork, around really, really good teamwork, working together. Um, and really taking opportunities and assessing the opportunities the right way and having a real clear path on how we're going to get there. But as I said, and then, and then seeing them come to fruition. So, but my biggest definition of success is just, just working as a team like, you know, and having that real culture um, bind as a, as a group together. I, I, I'm a big fan of that. That's my key. Very nice. All right, Scott, well,
2: thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast.